the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the seven deadly Minecraft skins and the uses of a dirt sword, entropy on tap, or non-algorithmic ciphers by the bottle. The Klein's bottle. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane Editor Tony Daniel, and with me is... I'm Bane Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And I'm Intern Rachel Mintel. This time on the podcast, we talked with Steve White about the latest entry in the long-running, best-selling Starfire series, which Rachel just edited, which was a long-running, best-selling uh, edit job that she had to do twice because we lost the first one. It was great. This one is called Imperative, the book, and it's written by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon. Imperative is a big-picture Star Navy strategy kind of book with a, with a dollop of action and adventure in there. Um, it's really good stuff. It's um, Steve will tell you all about it. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now here's the news. I want to mention the latest eARCs at Bain eBooks. Now an eARC is an area of 50 codons within the human genome that determines whether or not the individual will be able to sing with the soulfulness of an Ella or the nasal whine of a Bob. Ella, by the way, is recessive, so if a Bob and an Ella mate, you're going to get a Bob. Thanks, Mother Nature. No, that's not right. What is an ERC, Christopher? Tony, you got to stop lying to these guys. It's an... not a lie. It's just not the <laughs> truth. An ERC is an electronic advanced reading copy. It's a copy of the book in ebook form that we send out to reviewers and such before a book is published. We will sell this to you in all its typo-ridden glory, but months before the book is available in its transcendent form. That is the the key thing there. You get the book early, especially if it's a book in a series you love. You can you can get it months before it comes out. So, what are some of the new eARCs? What's one of them, Rachel? So we have Death Sprite Day by David Drake. This is the latest entry in the RCN series. Captain Daniel Leary thinks that his marriage will allow him to slip into the quiet role of a naval officer in peacetime. His friend, the spy and librarian Adele Mundy, is content to be collating data in her library. Unfortunately, duty and adventure is about to come calling and the stakes are high, as the Republic of Cinnabar fights a shadowy war with its great rival, the Alliance of Free Stars. Yikes, that sounds... Very exciting. So this is that's the new RCN book from David uh, Drake. What else do we have on tap with eARCs, Christopher? Well, also in eARC form is Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This is the new novel in the popular and exciting science fiction Leaden Universe series. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of sure bleak, and somewhat low on funds, Clan Corval desperately seeks to reestablish its position, but agents of the Leaden Department of the Interior are determined to see that Corval trading vessel Dutiful Passage should be hounded across the galaxy itself. Finally out now is Black Tide Rising, which is an anthology. It's a collection of short stories set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising zombie-infested world of the best-selling series by John. 
This great collection includes stories by multiple New York Times bestseller John Ringo, Eric Flint, Sarah A. Hoyt, Jody Lynn Nye, Michael Z. Williamson, and many more. So what are the yards again, Rachel? We have Death's Bright Day by David Drake, Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and the Black Tide Rising Anthology edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. And where are they available? Only available at Bain eBooks. Steve White is the author of 20 novels with Bain Books, I guess 21 now. Along with many standalone novels, Steve's Bain series include the Prince of Sunset series, the Disinherited series, the Star series. Uh, recently, Steve's Jason Thano time travel series has been growing with multiple entries. These books include Blood of Heroes, Sunset of the Gods, Pirates of the Time Stream, Ghosts of Time, and Soldiers at a Time. Steve is the author with David Weber, Shirley Meyer, and now Charles E. Gannon of the Starfire series of novels. These include entries Insurrection, Crusade, and Death Ground, The Shiva Option, Exodus, Extremist, and the latest edition, Imperative, written with Charles E. Gannon. Steve, in Imperative, uh, we've moved more than 80 years past the time of the original books. Ian Trevain, Admiral Ian Trevain, has been on quite a journey so far in the series. Can you give us a brief history of uh, Trevain's odyssey up to the beginning of Imperative? Trevain was first introduced in Insurrection, which was the first Starfire novel I ever wrote with David Weber, although it is not the first chronologically in the series. Insurrection tells the story of the Fringe Revolution, in which the Fringe worlds, the, the recent colonies, rebel and separate from the Terran Federation and form the Terran Republic. Now, in Insurrection, Trevain, who is a fiercely loyal Federation admiral, finds himself and his battle group cut off from the rest of the Terran Federation by the rebellion, and he manages to make his way to the Rim, which is uh, an area which is still loyal, to, loyal to, the, to the Federation, but which is cut off from communications with it. So Trevain is on his own there. He pretty much appoints himself Governor General of the Rim and defends it against the rebels, which makes him a big hero to the Terran Federation, which at this juncture is badly in need of heroes. However, in the end, he is fought to a standstill by his arch-nemesis, Admiral Lee Han of the Terran Republic, and Trevain is almost totally destroyed physically in the climactic battle, so that the only way to save his life is to dump him into a cryogenic bath without preparation, from Thanks. which he can't be awakened without killing him. So he spends the next year, or the next 80 years, getting, as he himself puts it, well and truly freezer burned, <laughs> until finally they develop the technology by which they can do an, an encephalic clone of him, in other words, a clone with everything except the brain, and transplant his brain into the clone. So after 80 years, he awakens in his own 18-year-old body and finds himself a great hero and the, regarded as the founding father of the uh, Rim Federation. And as fate would have it, he arrives at the same time that these new alien invaders, the Arduans, arrive, and the Rim Federation finds itself in dire straits. And, of course, this uh, sort of taps into some very deep mythic wellsprings, sort of like Arthur returning from Avalon when England needs him. And he ends up uh, leading the Rim and its allies to victory, and in the course of which he meets 
the daughter of his old nemesis, Lee Han, Lee Magda. And in the end, the two of them get married to the general stupefaction of the entire human race. <laughs> and they they have a child that they name after her dad, right? Uh, yeah, they named after her grandmother, Lee Han. Ah, grandmother. It is Han, Han Trevane. As someone somewhere points out, this is a little like somebody named McCoy naming a kid Hatfield. <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning of the novel, it seems things are, are on a more peaceful moment for uh, Trevian. What about the, the other main character in the book is Ossian Weathermere, who is a naval intelligence officer. Who do, I think he works for the Navy of the Rim Federation. Um, yes, he does. Yes, he does. He's... Uh, Ashen is a young man noted for his invincibly cheerful attitude and diabolically clever tricks. He is also a nephew of Kevin Sanders, the intelligence agent in Insurrection. Uh, so we've we've reconstituted the the uh, the uh, team of the admiral and the intelligence officer. <laughs> for the, what is Ashen's uh, professional relationship with Trevian? Well, the two of them meet toward the end of Extremis, which was the last novel before Imperative. But in Imperative, they don't really have a professional relationship because the well, the course of the war causes them to be completely cut off from each other. Uh, Ashen is left pretty much on his own with a pickup force, which he uh, leads by a very, very circuitous route back to the main theater of the war, which uh, Trevian is trying to maintain. And he's discovered, well, let's talk about the political situation first, I guess. So the Arduans have been subdued, and some of them have become allies and maybe even friends with humanity. There's Ankot. What can you tell us? It's a her, right? Her, right. Yeah, Ankot is a member of the Shakshu class, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself by explaining what that means, but uh, basically she uh, she is a member of the first dispersate, the first um, wave of Arduins that arrive in human space, and in the course of the novels Exodus and Extremis, she befriends a human, Jennifer Pietchkov, and in the course of forming this friendship, learns that humans really are sentient beings, a point on which there was some doubt among the Arduans, and in the end she is instrumental in arranging a peace between them. So as a result, as you say, the the first dispersate is now living more or less in peace, although the, the somewhat watchful peace with the humans and their allies. That's the first dispersate of the uh, Arduans. Right. Right, okay. Um... Now, there are Arduins, and, and then there are Arduins who are not so glad to, to have this new relationship. Maybe we should talk about one of the basics of Arduin communication and culture, which I guess defines mm-hmm. sort of um, who's, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. What, what is Selnarm? Selnarm is the telepathic sense by which the uh, Arduins communicate with each other with the minimum use of uh, spoken language, although they can use that too. And the fact that humans don't have it is why, first, they believed humans weren't truly sentient. Now, uh, 
sonar is also <clears throat> closely related to the past life memories of the Arduins. What you have to understand is the the Arduins firmly believe in reincarnation, and they um, their science has confirmed this, at least to their own satisfaction. Whether they're right, and if they are right, whether it applies to anyone besides themselves, are still open questions, uh, which we are deliberately leaving open. But this has some social consequences for the Arduins. First of all, they have a kind of cultural single-mindedness, which has not been possible for humans for centuries, because they never underwent the so-called conflict of science and religion that began in the 19th century, because you see, their science confirmed their religion. Mm -hmm. and, and furthermore, they are fearless fighters because they completely believe that death is merely a temporary inconvenience. Seldarm is um, is a the ability to communicate that is it's instantaneous, right? It's faster than light. Correct. It's based. Uh, it's rooted in quantum entanglement. Mm. It's, uh, and it, it can operate across planetary system wide distances instantaneously. And in the in the story, the the human theoretical physicists are still in denial about this. But by by making allies of the of some of the Arduins, they have acquired an interstellar radio. Well, no, no, it doesn't operate over interstellar distances. Uh, However, it's still very helpful because they can have what is called selenarmic relay between the warp points in a single system. Uh, instead of sending a courier boat from warp point A to warp point B across the system, which takes time, you just zip it from one the message from one warp point to the other. So within a solar system, or within a star system. Yeah, right, uh, right, and then it goes to, uh, you zip it over to the courier boat waiting at the next warp point. It goes to the warp point instantaneously. So they do, as a result of this, have pretty rapid interstellar communications for and the first time. It has a emotional or a, a component greater than just word-for-word -word language, too, as well, right? Yes, we, we tried to convey this by just uh, parenthetical notes of what sort of emotion is being conveyed on a subliminal level. So how does it fit in with the... Uh, the Arduins have a pretty rigid caste system, although they might not call it caste. Um, how does it fit in with that? How does it define that? The uh, Shakshu class, as I mentioned earlier, that Ankot belongs to... These are Arduins who have extremely detailed and numerous past life memories. And uh, as a result, they are the conservators of the culture. Now, the military, the Bistashahs, do not have this. And uh, this, is a, this is a point which becomes crucial because the, uh, it's the Shakshu who forged, of uh, the first dispersate, who forged the peace treaty with the humans, mm -hmm. and the later dispersates coming after them, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, the, uh, the 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 of the latter, uh, the later dispersates come to the conclusion that the, the Shakshu of the first dispersate have become corrupt and heretical and end up uh, distrusting the entire caste. There's a reason, I think, you give in, the, in there for why the warrior caste doesn't 
doesn't have the full cell norm cell normic um, ability. Why is that? Now, it's just a result of inbreeding of the two castes over a good many centuries. The uh, the Destachaz actually represents something of a of an evolutionary retrogression in the species. So um, one of the members of this cast is is one of our bad guys um, or bad girls, I guess. Bad girl in her case, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, who is um, Amun Amunset? What has she done with the Zarzuela system? Well, she's a, uh, she belongs to another dispersate, which ended up there. where and She got isolated there, and she's been just sort of under observation there the whole time, uh, supposedly not doing much, but actually engaging in a continuous supplying of information to the oncoming dispersates. So the which humanity... Are, which are led by ZoomRef who is sort of the Arduin race's answer to Adolf Hitler. Now, the, the, in these oncoming dispersates, the Destachaz not only have taken over, they have exterminated the Shakshu, in many cases by the simple expedient by withdrawing the life support from the ones that are still in suspended animation. And as a result of uh, unintended activities, by the time they arrive, they know a great deal about the human polities and their allies, the, all the, the, the warp connections, the uh, what sort of weapons they can expect to encounter, and so forth. So they have a terrific advantage in intelligence. So the humans know about Amunsa. I mean, the, the Rim Federation and the, and the other alien species know right. about Amunsa at the beginning of the novel, right? Right. But right. she's not part of the dispersate that fought the war. No, 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 no. This is a different one that ended up in Zarzuela. You have to understand. Well, uh, I keep getting ahead of myself, but the well, uh, let's, let's wait till we reach the whole issue of how the Arduins got here. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the transportation. You're talking about warp points. How does FTL work? And there have been some recent innovations, I think, in in the previous book. Okay. In the Starfire series, the way we cheat Einstein is by means of what are called warp points. These are naturally occurring, and the, the one leads to another. In other words, you go through a warp point, and, and you don't need any special sort of drive to do this, any spacecraft that can make it there above an extremely small size can do it, although uh, non-material energy transmission can't, which <clears throat> so you know words you can't send a radio signal to it. But ships can go through a warp point and this instantaneously results in them appearing at another warp point somewhere. Now, um, you mentioned recent innovations. The, the recent innovation that is most important uh, came about in Exodus and Extremis, and this is the Katsugawa generator, which allows artificial creation of warp points and also enlargement of existing warp points. Again, they come in different sizes, you see, and the size of ship that can get through them it depends on this. Now, the ability to create new warp points where there were none before obviously changes the uh, strategic picture of warfare tremendously. Yeah, because, this, uh, yeah, in the past, it's been totally linked to the existing warp network and to get to get anywhere you have to go 
people through from one war point to another. And, of course, this has military consequences. Um, somebody in some one of the novels basically describes interstellar space warfare as one long series of Surigao Straits. Well, I like the um, use the term dredging also for the enlargement. Right. Uh, yeah, this is uh, for, uh, just uh, for short, that's what they call the enlargement of warp points. Uh, there, there is an absolute upper limit at which the um, uh, warp point encounters uh, limiting factors that cannot be exceeded, but mm-hmm. up to that, they can be enlarged. So we have uh, FTL. The, the Arduins, at least originally, did not have FTL. They they arrived via slower-than-light travel, but did they they adapted. The ones that the first Disperse 8 adapted quite well to humans' FTL. Right. The, uh, right. They, uh, the Arduins, well, the reason they left their home system is because they had come to the realization that a nearby supernova was going to render their home planet uninhabitable. Now, of course, this would be distressing for anybody, but uh, it was especially distressing for Arduins because uh, their religion holds that uh, the total body, the, the total collectivity of constantly uh, reincarnating Arduin minds is in some way coterminous with their god, Iliador. And if there are no more Arduins around, then obviously there could be no further uh, reincarnation. And um, presumably, not only would their race vanish, but Iliador would also vanish, and presumably the universe would also. So you're talking some big juju here. And so they, so they were um, highly upset and um, devoted their entire energies as a species to building several waves of enormous generation ships. They haven't left all at once, though, right? That's the that's the kind of key to the plot here. So they basically they they build a, a certain number and send out one disperse eight and then keep building and send out another one and so forth. But they but these were all slower than light generation ships powered by photon drive, and it's easy to understand. And this is what I was getting at earlier: when they enter human space, it came as something of a shock because they didn't come out of war points; they just came out of a good old three-dimensional Isaac Newton space. And this completely knocked the strategic picture of space warfare into a cocked hat, because all at once it was as though the entire sky was one enormous invisible warp point through which uh, an enemy could come. Uh, You see, it had been centuries since humans had even thought in terms of slower-than-light interstellar flight. There was was no point. I mean, why do it when you can zip through warp points? They, they seemed as if they came from wherever the hell they wanted to come from. Precisely. They, yes, they, they weren't playing by the rules. They, they, weren't, they didn't have to follow the warp network, although, they, as you say, they uh, were able to learn about its existence from the humans that they in, on the planets they conquered when they first arrived and started expanding through the warp network, which was what the war in the novels Exodus and Extremis was all about. Mm. So... Tell us a little bit about the military technology. The the warp points are guarded. What sorts of weapons does uh, Trevane's Trevane's navy possess? 
the space warships and the weapons they carry have evolved in the course of this series, just as they evolved in the, the within the context of the game system, which was, on which the series was originally based. Now, the the history of uh, space warship design can, in very general terms and with certain exceptions, be boiled down to the proposition that bigger is better. And in the course of Exodus and Extremis, the humans come up with the biggest warships to date. First, the Devastator class, and then finally the Super Devastator. And the Super Devastator is the biggest that can be built, or at least the biggest you want to build, because it is the biggest ship that any war point can accommodate. So it's sort of like the situation before World War II. The U.S. couldn't build many battleships bigger than 45,000 tons because that was the biggest that could get through the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Now, as for the weapons the ships carry, these have evolved. And in the early stages of this future history, we were talking about what you would expect, particle beams and lasers and missiles and so forth. Now, by the time of imperative, we're, the weapons have developed quite a bit. There are various types of directed energy weapons, and most recently there is something called the, excuse me, <clears throat> called the energy torpedo, which is uh, actually a plasma weapon fired as a ballistic projectile, and this is extremely effective. And most recently they've invented something called the gravitic disruptor, or G-beam for short which is truly devastating, but it's powered by the engines of the ship, and it can only be reach its full effectiveness powered by really big engines on a really big ship. So, of course, this dovetails with the development of the Devastator and the Super Devastator. And so the ultimate weapon at this point is a Super Devastator armed with the G-beam, and it is widely assumed at the beginning of Imperative that the space warship design has reached finality and that uh, one of these things is invincible. I I trust I'm not really giving anything away when I say that in the words of Manny Yoakum, it ain't necessarily so. (laughs) Like the uh, the attitude of the world navies right before World War I, perhaps, with the nobody nobody anticipated the U-boat. So another weapon that it's at least discussed in the book, is kinetic attack. We've seen this in a lot of SF novels, but um, I don't know if I've ever heard about attack by debris that's at a significant percentage of the speed of light before. What would be the effect of something like that? That's an interesting question. It's highly speculative because nothing of the sort has ever happened, or at least it's it's never been observed. What happens is that the oncoming states after a certain point, start breaking up some of their generation ships and direct them at, at like two-thirds of the speed of light at human systems or, or Orion systems. Now, uh, what, what would happen if this did hit? Hard to say. you got something the size of a fist coming out at two-thirds of the speed of light. It hits a planet. It's going to go right through the crust. Now, if you have a whole shower of these things coming down, it's going to really heat up the atmosphere just by energy exchange and this almost infinitesimally brief passage through the atmosphere. So things could get quite hot, but only very temporarily because after they hit, all the gigatons of dust that are kicked into the atmosphere are going to create instant nuclear winter. 
And, of course, any of them that land in oceans are going to cause tsunamis and so forth. Just a bad business all around. Now, interesting, as I say, it's very speculative. We can, we can only theorize as to exactly what the full effect would be. And what's even more speculative is uh, what if one of these things hits the local sun? Now, uh, it would not create a supernova, because ordinary main-sequence stars, which are the only kind that can have habitable planets, don't become supernovas. It's just the supergiant stars that do this. However, if one of these things did hit an ordinary main-sequence star, I don't imagine it would do the star a bit of good. <laughs> then, at absolute minimum, I'm sure it would cause the mother of all solar flares, and that's what we have happening. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool. I mean, the the battle sequences and everything in the uh, imperative are well worked out and just really, really imaginative. I thought. So this is the second Starfire novel you've written with Chuck Gannon, right? Right. How do you guys go about the task, and how do you relate it to the original game? Do you still do that? Uh, the original game is still sort of the Old Testament of this uh, series, so uh, we still we have to we're still pretty much tied to its assumptions because Dave Weber and I were using them way back in the late 1980s when we wrote Insurrection, and uh, we do take series continuity very seriously. Here, because as for how we go about doing it, how we go about collaborating, if that's what you mean, yes. uh, the way we do it, each of us runs certain characters, and the and the military campaigns and other situations that those characters are uh, involved in. For example, Ian Trevane is one of my characters. In fact, he's been one of my characters ever since Insurrection, and Ashen Weathermere is all Chuck Gannon. So he handles that side, and I handle Trevane's side, and so forth. The This works extremely well in novels like the Starfire novels, where you have a large number of characters spread out in widely dispersed areas. And now, of course, at, at the climax, when you have the characters coming together then things get a little more complicated. Incidentally, this is the same way that Dave Weber and I did it when we were collaborating on Starfire novels. Trevane, as I say, was my character, and Lee Han was uh, Dave's character, and uh, well, in the end, for the big climactic battle, we had to put our heads together a little more uh, closely to coordinate this. But uh, But it seems... To work very well for the novels like for novels like these, I honestly don't know how I would go about collaborating on a novel that had a limited number of characters and a limited geographical or astrographical scope that kept them all together. Yeah, there's um, because Ocean's doing uh, doing his thing and uh, Trevan's doing his until I mean they do cross paths, but it's uh, it's definitely um, subplots for each. Do you then both go over the final product? Each of us goes over the other's stuff and uh, sends and <laughs> provides feedback on it. This way, hopefully, we iron out any stylistic discrepancies that might seem jarring to the reader. Do you ever come up with like any cool stuff to add, or has that already been done with the uh, with the first pass? It's not so much a matter of cool stuff as it is uh, 
tweaking what's already there. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, it's a wonderful space battle. Do you, how do you work out these the, the battles? Do you draw them out, or is it all just in your, yeah, in your I, head? I, I, every time I do a battle, I have a system sheet. One of them, you see, these were provided by the original game system, and I've just printed out oodles of these things, and I sit down and plot out the planetary system, where the planets are, where the war points are, and so forth. And uh, this enables me, this sort of keeps me honest when I am doing the strategic picture within a planetary system. And uh, it's, I think it's very important to keep yourself honest in something like this and not just uh, fudge things because you've written yourself into a corner. And But this way, I can avoid that and and also it, it, I think it just gives them a more of a sense of verisimilitude. Uh, the way I often do it, uh, <laughs> there are frequent staff conferences in these novels, and the way I describe it is the characters are looking at a display screen, which basically is a high-tech version of the paper thing I've got in front of me, and uh, I describe where things are by saying that the local sun is at the middle of it and just uh, radials out from that, the 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and so forth. And I, I think this is fairly clear to the reader if I describe it this way. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's all easy to picture, and there's just like some cool twists that um, when you reflect on them seem obvious, but that are surprises as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's, it's fun for aficionados of... Uh, of lots of spaceship battles. So, uh, other Steve White projects. Soldiers Out of Time, a big climax for the transhumanist plotline in the Jason Thano time travel series. But there seems to be plenty of history left for Jason to get mixed up with. What's next for Jason? Well, you've already, you've already seen what's next. Or if you, haven't actually, you haven't actually seen it, I don't think, but you've gotten it in the mail. Though the, uh, I've already submitted the next Jason Thano novel, After Soldiers Out of Time. The, the, this next one is entitled The Girl from Eridu. Now, uh, people who, like me, are addicted to the works of the late Jack Vance, and especially his Demon Princess novel, will instantly recognize the source of that title. And in my author's note, I uh, effusively uh, acknowledge my debt to Vance, or, or to put it more accurately, confess my theft from him. <laughs> and uh, in fact, uh, you might even say that and then in this novel, what I've tried to do is write the backstory to a poem that Vance wrote in one of his Demon Princess novels. The, the Palace of Love was the name of the novel. But, but yes, you're right. The, you know, Jason is definitely back here and uh, going back in time quite a bit further than he has before. Back to pre-dynastic Sumeria, in fact. Oh, I can't wait. What uh, what other Steve White projects are out there at the moment that you're uh, that you're thinking about or are doing? Well, well, the uh, well, as you know, we've also submitted Oblivion, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the sequel to Imperative, and uh, so I have two submissions in, and the Girl from Eridu is actually the last 
thing I'm under contract for. So right now I'm just sort of taking a breather after in these, these few weeks after I finished The Girl from Eridu, and um, pretty soon I'll be sending Tony some proposals for what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, the uh, contrary to what you might think from the title Oblivion, the Starfire series is still very much open. Where might the series be headed, provided uh, our heroes escape imperative? Are we going to... <laughs> We're going to see more of the Arduins' third wave. Well, of course, as you know, our heroes do escape or at least survive imperative because there there is the sequel, Oblivion. And beyond that, as I say, the series is still open. I can't really say in detail where it might be headed without being a spoiler for imperative and, to an even greater extent, Oblivion, if you follow me. Yeah. Well, we have that to look forward to, we, and um, the saga will continue. Somehow, each book, you, you make the situation incredibly dire. <laughs> well, yeah, well, i got to tell you, uh, after Chuck and I wrote Extremis, uh, I, we talked to a lot of people, and they really liked it, but uh, there was a certain amount of kvetching about the fact that this uh, war with the first Arduin dispersate I mean, it was, uh, there was some serious stuff going down here, but it, it didn't. It didn't have this uh, sense of overpowering, threatening gloom and doom for the entire human race. Like, for example, in the, the Shiva option, uh, where you you had the, the Arachnids who were threatening not only to wipe out the human race but eat it, and uh, mm-hmm. the, you just didn't get that. I mean, the, in Extremists. There were people complained that this was a relatively limited war. So, after listening to this enough, uh, Chuck and I said to each other, "Okay, if they want the human race to be threatened, we'll threaten the human race." <laughs> and uh, that's what we're doing in Imperative and Oblivion. I think I'm fairly safe in saying that Imperative should not be a disappointment to people who have enjoyed the series so far and people who enjoy large-scale military science fiction in general. I stress the large-scale, and this is one thing I like about the Starfire series, one reason I enjoy writing it. Uh, It has something that I think a great deal of military science fiction has lost, namely the vast scale which you have the ability to use in science fiction, but a lot of writers of military science fiction these days don't seem to use it. I mean, for a long time, I kept reading works of military science fiction that basically consisted of one grubby little infantry squad stuck in the jungle on planet Vietnam. Uh, So I I got a little tired of this. Uh, Recently, I gave it another try, and I don't want to name names, but I read a recent work of military science fiction, and guess what? We had one little infantry squad stuck in the desert on planet Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I I just think this sort of thing is unnecessarily limiting when you've got the whole galaxy to play with. Yeah, sure. And especially when you don't necessarily disapprove of uh, defending humanity against alien invaders. (laughs) You think mm. war might be good in some instances. Mm. <laughs> well, it certainly works in Imperative. Uh, the book that's out now is Imperative by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon. 
which is the latest entry in the New York Times bestselling Starfire series. Steve, uh, thank you very much for being with us today and talking about Imperative. Thank you. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 28 Time, 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 Steve said, pushing the throttles of the toy forward again. It didn't give him any more speed. Ask me for anything but. He stopped speaking as an attack boat made a fast surface off his starboard bow at about a thousand yards. He noted in the back of his mind that they'd surfaced upwind. Tina's toy, USS Dallas, over, the radio crackled. Steve? Stacy screamed from below. I see it, Steve said, picking up the radio. Wolf, actual, over. Wolf. All possible support has been authorized for this operation, the Dallas said. USS Charlotte is in the process of taking the Campbell under tow to bring it to the cruise ship. We cannot supply clearance personnel, but access to all USCG materials are, say again, are authorized, and USCG personnel are to place themselves temporarily under your command for clearance and rescue support. We don't have much in the way of shotgun rounds, but we're going to float what we have off in a boat, as will Charlotte upon arrival, to assist your clearance teams. Current weather report is no fronts or tropical activity for this area for a minimum of ten days. Some convection storms are possible, but they are scattered. We will be monitoring all area channels, but are now authorized to directly communicate. We will be taking over Marine Channel 33, we will continue to give what support we can without being contaminated. Do you have any questions at this time? Not that I can think of, Steve said. We will draw ahead of you and drop off a radio on a float, Dallas said, speeding up. The Tina's toy was a fairly fast yacht. Not a racing yacht, but no lubber. The Dallas just left it behind, on the surface. The radio is for your use and your use only, Commodore Wolf. Dallas continued. Higher would like to have a secure chat. Proceeding to the Seafit's location. Good luck, Wolf. A bright orange buoy ejected from a launcher, and the Dallas slipped below the waves. Steve was pretty sure by the time it disappeared, it was going faster than a cigarette boat. Stacy sat down next to him and wrapped her arms around him. Her eyes were misty. We're in contact, Steve said, hugging her. That's not what I'm crying about, Stacy said. What's wrong? Steve asked. Nothing, Stacy said, hugging him again. The commander of a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine called you Commodore. And I don't think he even realized he'd said it. Oh, that, Steve said, 
slowing the boat as Pat pulled out a boat hook to catch the buoy. Now worries wife of mine, I'm sure he's regretting it already. Where do you want me to put it, Faith? Sophia asked. How the fuck should I know? Faith said. She sounded desperate. There was reason to be. The cruise ship was massive. Really, seriously, stupidly huge. The boats around it were so many mice. No, fleas circling an elephant. A wounded and still bleeding elephant. Because rising as high as a skyscraper, or so it seemed from the waterline, there were staterooms, with exterior balconies, and on at least a dozen of those, there were people watching the circling craft. People who looked like survivors of the death camps. Most of them couldn't even stand. They were leaning against the railings, just staring with glassy eyes at the help just a few hundred yards away. One of them, on the lower balcony, lurched to his feet and started to climb the rail. No, no, no! Faith shouted. No, no, sharks, sharks, sharks. Sophia shouted over the loud hailer. The man couldn't seem to hear or understand. He more fell than dove over the side. Hacienic started firing from the aft deck, but there was no way. There were sharks everywhere. It was unlikely that he was the first person who'd taken that way out in preference to starvation or dehydration. The man didn't even scream as he was taken under. Why, damn it, why? Faith shouted. She picked up the mic for the loud hailer. Stay where you fucking are. We will come for you. Just hold on. How? Sophia asked. There's no entries. And that promenade? It wasn't really a promenade. It was the lifeboat deck. And that was 50 feet above the flying bridge of the Endeavor. How the hell am I supposed to know? Faith repeated. You're the entry specialist, Sophia said calmly. I'm trying not to stress you. I really am asking. Hooch, Faith shouted. How would the Marines board this thing? A helicopter, Hooch shouted back. Or a boarding ladder. There's a hello on the Alpha, Sophia said. You know how to fly one? Faith asked, somewhat hysterically. Faith, take some breaths, sis, Sophia said calmly. We're going to do this. We are. Okay, okay, Faith said. We get a grapnel up. Then, I don't know, maybe with some knots in it or something? There we go, Sophia said. It's going to be a bitch to climb. Yeah, Faith said, especially in armor. And if we drop in the drink, shit. Keep going. Sophia said. Well, Faith said, then stopped. Or maybe we could ask the sub if they've got an idea. What's uh Sophia said, looking around, then stopped. Local Wolf Squadron boats, USS Dallas, looking for the boarding action commander. Please switch to channel 33. All captains may monitor, but request not break. Again, USS Dallas looking for boarding action commander. She-Wolf, you on the Endeavor, over. So we're Wolf Squadron, huh? Sophia said, picking up the radio and handing it to Faith. Faith, honey, take a deep breath and don't get hysterical when you're talking to him. I'm not the boarding action commander, Faith said. That's da. 
You're the closest, Sophia said. Want me to take it? No, Faith said, her face firming. She took the radio and cleared her throat. 33? You're on, Sophia said. Dallas, She-Wolf, Faith said. Over. She-Wolf, we've been monitoring your squadron's communications. Your reputation precedes you. The man who is filling in as president says that the moment he meets you, he's going to cover you with so many medals, you're not going to be able to move. Of course, the same can be said of everyone in this squadron, but we know you're the squadron's premier clearance specialist. This has got to be a nightmare for you. Over. Got it in one, Faith said. Over. We can't get out of this tin can. We're still uninfected and can't change that for any reason. But we are going to do everything else we can to help. Have you discussed how to do entry? Roger, Faith said. All we've got so far is throw up a grapnel with a knotted rope. Lance Corporal Hossianic is still not really in shape, and I'm not what you call a great climber. That completely skips the whole man-eating sharks part, and the zombies at the top. Still thinking it over. Over. We have an assault boarding letter, Dallas replied. We will float that off along with all of our onboard shotgun ammo and the shotguns. We use 9 mil on board. Can you use that? Over? Not really, Faith said. Limited guns for it, and we carry mostly 45. We're okay for now on 45. The shotgun ammo is, yeah, gonna be helpful. But, she unkeyed the mic for a second. Hey, Hooch, you know how to use an assault boarding ladder? Yeah, Hooch said. Sort of. I mean, I've seen it done. Dallas, we may need somebody to coach us through using an assault boarding ladder. Over, Faith said. We'll do that, She-Wolf, Dallas responded. The tough part is the throw. It's got a double line. You get the grapnel up, make sure it's on, then pull in on one of the lines. That pulls the ladder up and it hooks in at the top. Then it's just a matter of climbing the ladder. Stand by. Roger, Faith said, shrugging at Sophia's look. She-Wolf, have your boats pull back. We're going to do a close approach and send up a party to clear off some of the zombies from your boarding area. We may, say again, may, be able to get the ladder in place for you. Don't get yourselves contaminated doing that, Faith replied, sharply. You're the closest thing we've got to home left, Dallas. Look, just stand by. Roger, She-Wolf. Hooch, Faith called. They want to shoot some zombies off the side, and maybe getting the boarding ladder in place. I'm afraid they're going to get contaminated. They've got suits like moon suits on board, Faith, Hooch called back. And a machine gun. I think they can do it. The question is, can they get the zombies up to the boarding area? Dallas, you sure you can do this and not contaminate yourself? Faith asked. Because I just thought of something. She's more worried about losing a sub than her own life. Galloway said. I am going to cover that girl in medals. So help me God. What is your suggestion, She-Wolf? We've got some vaccine, she said, looking at Sophia. It's still good, right? She whispered. Should be, Sophia said. We even stabilized it. Not a lot left, but enough for a small team. We'd really appreciate the help with the boarding but I'm worried about the rest of your crew getting contaminated. So, you guys clear the group off, get the ladder up if they can, 
Then put them off in a lifeboat or something. We'll get them some vaccine. It's supposed to take two weeks to work, but they can't get the blood pathogen except with a bite or getting blood in a cut. And if that's all you get, well, I survived after just the primer. So all they get, maybe, is the flu bug, and we'll keep away from them, so they shouldn't get that. I guess you can float them rations or something, so they hang out until they're boosted. Ten days in a raft. Most of the squadron has done two months. If you can spare them, and if somebody wants to volunteer. And if that makes any sort of sense. Over. Interesting plan, considering that she-wolf. Being discussed by experts. We have volunteers, either one way or both. Have your boats clear back from the port side. We are going to do a close approach for direct fire. Roger, Dallas, Faith said. Thanks. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, you've got the tough part, miss. Dallas, out. Squadron, this is Seawolf, Sophia said over the flotilla net. She engaged the engines to full and turned to port as she said it. Clear the port side. Say again, port side of the ship. Dallas is going to do a close approach for direct fire. Get way, way back. In fact, get forward and way back, or on the far side of the ship. Ricochets from machine gun fire can kill you at a mile. You girls just know too damn much about guns, Cheryl growled. Moving around to the far side. I do want to watch, but not enough to get hold. We're approaching your location, Chris called from the Cooper. But on consideration, I'm stopping about five miles out. Nice to see the bloody USN decided to finally show up to the party. Navy's here, someone called. Hallelujah. Submarine, Sophia said. It can't do much but fire from range. They're not contaminated and don't want to be that way. But yeah, we've got some support. Finally. Chuck switched to 23 and I'll fill you in, Chris said. I was monitoring the conversation. Be nice to get some help. Switching. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a handful of fallen leaves like the things of man, a cup of rain like the joyful tears of angels, and a bouquet of the red, red rose of laser fire on a fleeing pirate ship trying to leave orbit with its loot, along with our gratitude and praise to Steve White, author with Charles E. Gannon of the new Starfire novel, Imperative. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, 
Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.